This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, we are really just about done with Advent. Feels like we just got started, but Advent is super short this year because the fourth Sunday of Advent is Christmas Eve, which uh, adds the added difficulty of now you have two holy days of obligation to hit in as many days, which is something that happens periodically, but it's fairly rare. Uh, So pull out your calendar now and start preparing. Today, we're going to be talking with Joe Heschmeyer, one of my favorite guests to have on. Joe's a staff apologist at Catholic Answers. When he's not on air, he's writing uh, exceptionally thorough apologetic treatises or hosting the Shameless Popery podcast. Uh, We've had him on numerous times before. You can go and listen to those over at our archives, OutsideTheWalls.com. Just click the guest list and go all the way down to Joe Heschmeyer. Joe, so glad to have you on the show today. Thanks. It's good to be here. I I wonder if we shouldn't say something about the uh, Holy Days of Obligation thing since you mentioned it. Yeah. And I've already had two family members ask me, what are the rules around this? When (laughs) when are we supposed to go into Mass? And the, the easiest answer is there are two obligations. You need to go to Mass for Christmas and you need to go to Mass for the fourth Sunday at Advent. Yep. Uh, you can't have one mass that counts for both like a Sunday evening. Cause you know, Sunday evening is going to be Christmas Eve evening. There are Christmas masses yep, and that can count as one of the two obligations, either your Sunday obligation or your Christmas obligation. It can't count for both. So you can go Saturday evening and Sunday evening if you want to do that, or uh, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. You could go Saturday evening and Monday Christmas itself. If you wanted to do that, it's a little strange. You could do that. But the point is, you should be going to Mass twice, once for Sunday and once for Christmas. And you bring up a good point there. So here's a question that I have. I'm going to throw this out. I know that you can do Saturday and Sunday, and I know that Sunday can count for either Sunday or Christmas. <laughs> is, it, is it the kind of thing where a, a, someone could do like the four o'clock vigil for their for their uh the family mass and then go to midnight mass and have two Sundays evenings for yeah. both. Yeah, they could. Huh. I'm, I'm so, also making plans for myself because our, <laughs> our mass schedule is somewhat limited over here. Yeah, sure. I mean, you, it would be a, a sort of a strange way to do it, but it would, yep. it would be a totally valid way to do it because the point is we want you to remember and honor the fact that it's Sunday and remember and honor the fact that it's Christmas. And both of those are things that are worth commemorating. Well, and not only is it a Sunday, but it's a Sunday in Advent, which doesn't That's get right. trumped by anything. Right. right. And so you're you're going to take that last little bit of time to prepare for Christmas, even if you're going to a Christmas Eve mass that has the Christmas readings. You're still, if you're someone who hasn't done that fourth Sunday of Advent, you get a tiny little taste of it before we speed on to Christmas. Because... As you kind of alluded to, this is the shortest Advent could possibly be. Mm-hmm. You know, the longest it can be is 28 days. The shortest it can be is 22. And, the, or, you know, the, between the start of Advent and Christmas, so right. really 21. And this is this is the shortest that we're ever going to have. To that point, it is important. The church views it as important that we put as much focus on this preparational season of Advent as possible. Uh, and I've talked about this before, maybe three, four or five years ago, I came up with this formulation that is very helpful to me. I I don't know that I've heard anyone else talk about it, but this is not just the time that we're preparing for 
the birth of Jesus, but rather there's a bigger purpose to this season that we have the two big feasts of the church of Christmas and Easter. Um, Easter is that, uh, is that season where the incarnation touches us personally, where we receive that personal uh, interaction and, and encounter with Christ. And so Lent is that time that we examine ourselves and we realize that there are things that I need in my life. All is not right with me and I need a savior. And Easter is the answer to that. We find the answer to our weaknesses in the strength and the grace of Christ that we get through the cross. Uh, Advent is different. Advent, the first two weeks, we get this eschatological uh, realization that all is not right with the world. We hear the prophets talk about how uh, how the world is not how it was created to be. And then we have a little bit of focus on uh, the specific first incarnation of Christ there in those last two weeks of Ad- Advent as we get to the O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and some of that remembering and identifying with those people in the Old Testament who are longing for that first coming. So we're looking at both of these uh, these longings, both for Christ to come at the end where he's not yet come, and for Christ to come in the incarnation where we celebrate Christmas. And so we see that all is not right with the world, and we focus on that problem, and then Christmas is the answer to that. Now, today I want to speak specifically about how Advent helps us frame that question and recognize the things that aren't right with the world. So you asked, Joe, what were we going to talk about today? And I floated the idea of this this line from the Christmas Carol, uh, all is calm, all is bright. Because when I look around, I see a lot of noise in our polarized society and in the, in the arguments we choose to have and in the opinions that we choose to spout. And I see anything other than all is calm, all is bright. So this is my all is not right with the world this year is the polarization. And I, I wonder, you're in a unique place in your work doing apologetics to see that uh, from maybe a different perspective than the rest of us. So looking at this picture of all is not right with the world. What is it that you see? Yeah. I mean, in terms of the polarization, I think we see it. I think everyone sees it right now within the church in a really obvious way. We've always seen it in society and we've seen it getting progressively worse. And, you know, people say, oh, you know, everybody always says things are getting worse, but here we can actually point really concretely to several objective rubrics showing that people are becoming more uh, disunified. People are coming apart. They are uh, more divided. The number of people who would be okay with one of their children marrying someone of the opposite political party, or they themselves marrying someone of the opposite political party, is on a, a steady downward stream. So, what, what other, whatever like blame you want to place, the first thing we should at least recognize is we are in an incredibly partisan country right now, and it is by far the most extreme it's been in my lifetime. I don't want to say the most extreme it's been, you know in the history of the country, of course, like we had a civil war. So I think that probably is going to be above that. But nevertheless, I mean, there's a real sense in which there's incredible division, incredible disunity and incredible tribalism. And so it's not just, oh, people aren't getting along. It's also that in that kind of cultural context, which team you're rooting for, which letter goes next to your name uh, becomes more important than anything else. It's the most in cult- important cultural marker. 
and it can quickly take this place that only God ought to have. And uh, so I think you can see this in a lot of ways. I mean, for one, I mentioned people are less and less willing to marry someone of the opposite political party. At the same time, there's less and less interest in whether you're marrying someone of a totally different religion. That mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, two yeah. people in the same political party who have radically different concepts of God find it easier to get married than two people with the same concept of God but different political affiliations. That points to something radically out of whack in terms of the role politics plays in our life. The last thing I'd say here, we see this when it comes to evangelization. One of the most common refrains uh, that we bump into is people who you know work in the Catholic space full time is, oh, you know, it's really good to evangelize. I just don't think I could do it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm worried about losing friends and alienating people and et cetera, et cetera. And here's something where if there's ever a reason to alienate people or to risk a friendship, it's this. And yet people don't want to do it. But then if you go look at the social media of the same people saying that, they're only too willing to alienate people and, you know, make these incredible demands like unfriend me if you believe X, Y, Z about fill in the blank political issue. So they're willing to draw the hard line in the sand and to alienate friends and to do all of this, this stuff many times in ways that are completely unnecessary, but they won't do that for Jesus. They won't do mm-hmm. that for religion. And so it, it looks from an outside perspective as if the true religion of many of us, and this is something any of us can fall into, that the true religion, the thing we're spending the most time and energy and effort, especially in our free time, is politics. It's building up our treasure here below rather than building up a treasure in heaven. Like a good Catholic, I'm going to yes and you here, uh, because I think that there certainly is that that polarization on the um, on the topic of politics, and maybe centrally on the topic of politics. But uh, I live around a couple of teenagers, and let me tell you, uh, it, whether it be universal teenage experience or a sign of our times, they can find all kinds of things to be polarized on, um, whether it be whether or not Star Wars is the best movie of all time or whether or not you should read Lord of the Rings or whether or not you're doing something in the right order. Or it, it seems like there is, and, and I, I see a correlation to this through the, the, um, the means of communication that we have, particularly the kinds of social media that we have that prioritize being seen and having our opinions uh, heard and validated by a community. But there tends to be this idea that if I have an opinion, it's my obligation to share it. And it's your obligation to either come on my side or post uh, in opposition to me. Yeah. I mean, this is a thing that we don't spend enough time thinking about how strange it is. The default setting on a lot of these social media sites is public, Mm -hmm. that you have become in your own weird way a public person and a zealous celebrity, you know, like not just you, I mean, me, everybody, like everybody listening. And we don't really stop and say, you know, is any of this stuff worth sharing, you know, regardless of whether the opinion is right or wrong, do I need to say that? Yeah. And I I think, well, sorry, go ahead. I was was going to say uh, when I, I, uh, as you can imagine growing up, I had no problem being vocal about everything and just, I'll, I'll, if I'm thinking something, I didn't really have a filter. I'm just going to verbally process that out loud so you can hear it. And my Protestant mother, 
uh, over and over and over. This was like a, a mantra that was drilled into my head. She's like, remember, Mary pondered these things in her heart. Beautiful. You, you don't have you don't have to share everything you know. So if if a Protestant mother can give Mary as an example, surely we all can take a little bit and say there is something beneficial about stopping, pondering, examining, and asking the question: Is this opinion really worth me sharing? Does it matter that everyone knows that I think this? Is this going to benefit anyone, or is this an opportunity for me just to keep my mouth shut and listen? Right. Or even to ask questions, right? Yeah. So St. Thomas Aquinas has uh, a homily called Puer Jesus, which just means the boy Jesus. And he's trying to understand how it is in Luke 2 that Jesus grows in wisdom, because it's very strange to say the Lord of the universe grew in wisdom in his humanity. And he is focused particularly on this moment of finding Jesus in the temple, and if you look at depictions of it, you know, Jesus is often depicted sitting or standing, uh, you know, teaching all of the teachers. But if you read Luke 2, it's not quite what it says. It says they're amazed with him for his questions and his understanding. That he's not, you know, gathering all the teachers to say, let me tell you how it is. He's asking good questions. And that's what actually draws their attention. And I feel like this is a skill that we've lost. So Aquinas talks about this. And if you look at Aquinas' own life, he lived this, right? Like the reason he was known as the dumb ox in seminary is he didn't jump in with the answer. He might've thought he knew what the answer was, but he was going to listen and try to learn from other people, including his fellow peers, and students, uh, rather than assuming he had it all figured out. And so by the time he really goes to proclaiming things, he's a master of understanding different perspectives because he's been listening to them carefully and he's absorbed an astonishing amount of information. I mean, the man was a, a walking encyclopedia, if ever there was one. But he didn't get that way by spouting his opinion off at 18, 19, 20, but rather spending a great deal of time absorbing, listening, and asking questions. And, and I think Aquinas sees Jesus as a model of that, whereas we might be inclined to see Aquinas as a model of that, just because it, it's something so obvious in his life story. Yeah. Uh, th there's a quote that's attributed uh, to, to tangent what's going to seem a little wildly, uh, a quote that's attributed to Soren Kierkegaard. And he says, if you name me, you negate me. By giving me a name or a label, you negate all of the other things I could possibly be. And I think that this is true in two different facets. One, it's true when we are so quick to distinguish, divide, and categorize the person that we're talking to. Because instead of building bridges and being ministers of reconciliation, we jump to, let me tell you not what's wrong with the world, but let me tell you what's wrong with you, right? Let, let me set you up in a place where you're defensive posture to begin with. Um, but I think on the other side, I think that when we so quickly define ourselves, coming back to your book on identity, uh, when we so quickly define ourselves as being for something or against something or associated with an opinion that maybe we've put a little bit of time into, we also negate ourselves and all of the other things that we might could be or might should be under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's right. I think you, you can risk kind of boxing people, especially as you're labeling those with whom you disagree. You really risk leaving them in a spot where it actually becomes harder for them to leave it. 
because it's become a constitutive part of their identity. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I guess I don't have anything to say beyond that strikes me as correct. And that it strikes me that we can do that to ourselves when we make these subordinate inferior things, the kind of core part of our identity. The the thing I keep going back to is Pius XI's instruction, the only German language papal encyclical, uh, Mit Brittender Zorge, in which he talks about the madness of making race or anything else uh, the center uh, by putting it in this godlike place. And he's obviously writing against the Nazi party, but it's something to remember because uh, he warns against doing this with the state or anything else. Like, anything else you're putting in that spot that only God goes in, where this is the thing that defines you. You're the person who, yeah, maybe it's hates Star Wars. Maybe it's is a Republican. Maybe it's is, you know, whatever. Like anything that you're putting in that spot that isn't Jesus Christ in his kingdom, it doesn't belong there because we we have a king and, and it's not the GOP and it's not hating Star Wars and it's not whatever is going to get likes and retweets and reactions on social media. Hey, it's Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, and let's move maybe even away from political party for a second, because I, I'm struck by, and when I first became Catholic in 2011, uh, I was influenced by a, a number of really influential Catholics. Uh, but the people who followed those Catholics would put um, modifiers on the front of Catholic. Uh, I'm a conservative Catholic. I'm a faithful Catholic. I'm a they're a lapsed Catholic. This is this is kind of the the sphere of uh, available things within Catholicism, which is an interesting thing when you stop and think about it, because we're saying here is a subset of universal, right? Yeah, I'm I'm this subset of universal, uh, yeah. because that's what Catholic is supposed to mean, and so. Lately, I've been kind of deconstructing those ideas and saying, where can I find points of unity? Because through points of unity are where we find seeds of the gospel or seeds of agreement that we can then grow from um, with people who might typically put a different modifier on the front of their Catholic uh, or on the front of whatever other identity they choose to have so that I can enter into a conversation that will actually lead somewhere rather than just lead me with the feeling uh, of the endorphin hit of being right. Yeah. I, I believe it's James Joyce who described the Catholic church as here comes everybody. Yep. And so this isn't just a new thing. Like I think because of polarization and all the things we talked about earlier, these things weigh more and they hurt more and they, they feel worse. And in some stakes, given the kind of battles in the church, the stakes can be higher. But at all times in the history of the church, there's some degree of this. And that's not a bad thing. You know, one of the differences between most forms of Protestantism and Catholicism is most forms of Protestantism are kind of affinity groups on some level. So it tends to be people who are coming from a sort of comparable background. Uh, and who have pretty similar convictions about things. And because they agree with one another and more or less get along, they're able to form an ecclesial community. And the Catholic Church just doesn't really work that way. And in fact, when it's working properly at the parish level, it works that way even less than it works right now. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. Uh, Because typically, it's certainly the parish model, it's just geographic. It's, well, everybody in the neighborhood shows up. Mm -hmm. And so... It's not like a meeting of 
a political group. It's not like a meeting of a social club that all gets along. It's like a neighborhood block party. <laughs> and you're not going to always agree with everybody on the block. And that's okay. And you might have radically different life experiences, and that's okay. I was struck by this years ago. Um, I was looking at a very self-consciously trying to be multicultural uh, form of Christianity that was almost exclusively elderly white people. (laughs) And I was living in the Archdiocese of Washington at the time. And if you walked into my church or if you looked at the vocations poster, the Catholic church without trying, without, you know, loudly proclaiming, look at how welcoming we are, was seemingly more inclusive, not just of different backgrounds and cultures, but also even different ideas. Uh, even though that's not the kind of the reputation the church has, but they're on things that are negotiable on things that don't have to be uh, points of agreement. There is a tremendous amount of room for dialogue, disagreement, and sometimes even outright arguing. Uh, so yesterday I was on staff retreat with the folks at Catholic Answers, and it was led by some Chaldean Catholic priests. And the Chaldeans are uh, historically Iraqi. And so they are really far east in terms of the spread of Christianity. And they were talking about how in one of their early councils, they referred to the Christians of Antioch as the West. You know, these are the Western Christians. They're in Syria. And uh, it was a good reminder that, you know, right now there's Coptic Catholics and there are Chaldean Catholics. But historically, those two groups did not get along. You know, they... They had derogatory terms for the saints venerated by the other side. And they had, and so it's remarkable. It's not, you know, it's much bigger than just left wing, right wing, whatever of today's politics. Mm-hmm. It's just when you gather a billion people from around the world with different backgrounds and experiences, uh, they're going to have a lot of things that they part ways on. And if we can't learn to love one another in that and say, yeah, but the things we have in common, they shared a love of Jesus Christ in his church is more important. Then, then we're missing it. Well, and let's to that point. Uh, looking at the different rights, if if I can be a part of the same church as those in the Byzantine rite who don't have the filioque when they pre- when they say the creed, mm-hmm. um, then then it seems that I have to have a different litmus test for what makes me a Catholic, for what joins me together, than simply. Uh, uniformity or, or ideological purity, right? There has to be some unifying thing. And of course, I believe that that's the sacraments right. and our experience of the sacraments, rather than whether or not I hold to this idea with with uh, perfect precision. Yeah. Well, I think, and let me kind of build on that in a couple of ways. One is when we're talking about the ideas, there are some things that it is really important we hold to. You know, we have a creed. It's one of the things that kind of binds us together. But it isn't how we become Catholic. You know, the creed isn't the thing that makes you a Catholic. Baptism is. Yeah. And so there is a priority to the sacramental life of the church because it's that that brings you into the family of God, not whether you intellectually agree with the creed or, or any of the other things that we divide on. And this is something that I think is worth really chewing on. The, the person you disagree with the most in the church you have something in common with them that you don't have with the person you agree with the most outside of the church. 
And if we've lost sight of that, even, you know, even if that person you disagree with most, you think they're a bad Catholic or, you know, yeah, but fine. Still, there's an ontological change that's happened in them in baptism. There's a, a sacramental identity of that person that if we have not taken that seriously as saying this creates a bond between the two of us that I don't have with those outside the walls, if you will, <laughs> uh, just to use the, uh, if, if we don't do that, then I don't think we've taken seriously enough uh, the transformation that happens in baptism. And so here I would just say the danger is here. And so again, speaking very much from an American context, we are surrounded by two things, Protestantism and kind of the, the vestiges in some cases of Protestantism where people are bound together by their agreement on certain doctrinal positions, and second, political parties and other social groups in which people come together on the basis of their ideological positions. And in both cases, the ties that bind seem to be ideas. And ideas are very important in the Christian life, but there's something even more than that. You know, the, the person who listened to everything Jesus said and said, yep, I think I can agree with all of that, but didn't follow him and didn't get baptized, that person's not a Christian. Mm -hmm. They're just a, a casual observer. Whereas the person who does say, I want to follow Jesus, and they do get baptized, even if they can't articulate the ideas, even if they don't understand the ideas, they're still in the family in a way that first person is. And, and that's something that is something we should be tremendously grateful for. We don't have to be theologians to be saved. And it's something that we should give more appreciation to, not just for what it means for us, but what it means for our neighbors. I, I've been lately applying to myself as I've been trying to categorize or understand uh, the framework of this question of here comes everybody, is um, if a French medieval peasant couldn't understand it, but they were still Catholic, then maybe it's not something that should be a definer, right? <laughs> yeah. I want to let the church figure out what should and shouldn't be kind of the defining characteristics because of the things I want to make defining characteristics, I may be wrong about, mm -hmm. you know, so there are things where the church makes it really clear. You have to accept these things or you're not a Catholic in good standing and they can actually hurt your membership in the church. It can hurt your kind of standing in the family, but there are a lot more things that the church has never taken that kind of position on yeah. that we want to. You know, I have a preferred posture for how I receive Holy Communion. My neighbor may have a different one. And if I start making the litmus test that you receive the way I receive, I'm mm -hmm. binding an area of the church that's loosed. And that's not appropriate. It's not my place. It's not my calling. On the other hand, the things that the church has bound and said it's important everybody believes this, I don't have the kind of the latitude to say, oh, no, you know, believe it or don't believe it. It's up to you. Mm -hmm. I can't lose what the church is bound to either. So in both cases, there's that real sense of saying, well, who's defining who's in and who's out? And it, it should not be me. And thank God it's not. Yeah. We're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer, staff apologist at Catholic Answers. You can find out more about his work over at Catholic.com. We're talking about Advent as our preparation, not only for the birth of Christ, but for the coming of Christ's kingdom. Come and be a part of the ongoing conversation over at social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is at step outside the walls. And don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today with Joe Heschmeyer. Uh, He is staff apologist over at Catholic Answers, catholic.com. When he's not on air, he's writing exceptionally thorough apologetic treatises. His uh, earlier ones were over at uh, shamelesspopery.com. You can still find those older ones there available. Uh, Now they're all over at catholic.com. Uh, he also hosts the Shameless Popery podcast, best name ever. Um, Joe, so glad to have you here on the show again today. Thanks. I appreciate being here. So uh, the next part of this, though, we're talking about Advent as a reminder, as a framework, as a focal point on the efficacy of Christ and the insufficiency of our own efforts when dealing with conflict and injustice. We've been talking about basically identity and how we uh, how we choose to identify, how we choose to express our opinions and what opinions we choose to express, all based on this Christmas Carol line, all is calm, all is bright. Uh, so we've been talking about the all is calm part because so far there's a really obvious problem, it feels obvious, of polarization and increasing division uh, that we all choose to divide ourselves based on certain litmus tests. And there's that joke about the, um, the Protestant community. Um, uh, oh, I'm, I'm this denomination. Oh, I am too. Oh, I'm the reformed, this denomination. Oh yeah, that's my branch also. Oh, I'm the 1976 reformed. And they go through the whole list. And finally you get, um, I'm the, uh, the, the, uh, ESV with, uh, the 1996 edition of the 19th and the, the finally, the final guy goes, you heretic, and throws him off the, the cliff. Right. After all of this agreement, there's the one thing, and I, I feel like sometimes we can do that. We we put so many walls and distinctions up that we choose uh, division over unity. And unity, can, I, can I throw something out there? Come on. Uh, Sigmund Freud calls this the tyranny of small differences. And I think mm-hmm. we see it playing out, you know look at the history of like the conflict in the Balkans yeah, or, you know, in the Middle East. And it's often people who are culturally actually really similar, you know, maybe share a language, certainly have a lot of history, their neighbors. And then you get somebody who's like at the other side of the world and they're like, yeah, I'm fine with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't have any problem with the person halfway around the world from me. It's my neighbor that I have the problem with. And Jesus calls us out on this. Like, there's a reason he says, love your neighbor rather than just, love the alien. It's easier to love the alien mm-hmm. unless the alien moves in and right. becomes your neighbor. And then it's a double, uh, a double problem, right? So uh, th- that first part, that all is calm, uh, I just want to draw us toward the idea of seeking the calm and using Advent really to do that, to, to focus on the things that Advent focuses on, uh, on the problems in the world that are solved and answered by the incarnation, both that first expression of the incarnation in Christ and that expectant incarnation we have as Christ returns uh, at the eschaton. The second part of that, so we've got all is calm, all is bright. And as I think about that second part, I think of what are we focusing on? What are we fixing our eyes on? And this is tied in to the first part. And I go back to that passage in uh, Philippians 4.8 where at the end of that letter, Paul is saying, finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And I think sometimes we equate this with the power of positive thinking, which is not at all what Paul is talking about here. Right. Um, He's talking about what is just, right? And what what is just and looking at the injustices in, in the world uh, is not always the most peaceful, ignorant, Pollyannic thing to do. It, it takes um, energy to focus on what is just as a response to injustice, but it's always moving towards the answer and the praiseworthy thing rather than fixing all of our energies on the broken. Yeah. And this is really hard to do because it's a lot easier to gather people around a problem than around a solution. If you just say, Hey, you know, things are not going well at work. Your coworkers are going to agree with you. But if you say, here's what we need to do differently, unless it's like, we should all get raises. You know, (laughs) if it's not that, then chances are you're going to quickly see the fault lines. People are going to actually disagree much easier to identify problems and to find solutions people can agree on. You know, we can all agree uh, extreme poverty is a problem. But if you say, okay, great, what do we do about that? That's where the fault lines appear. Mm-hmm. And most of the major problems in the world are, are like that. And so it's easy to settle for focusing on the negative. And this is true, not just in the world, but in the church. You can, you can get rich And as much as you can get rich in Catholic media, you can get rich by just highlighting scandals and sin and everything else. And that's popular. That's easy. You can get a lot of clicks that way. Mm -hmm. It is much harder to say, okay, great. Well, what's true? What's honorable? What's just? What's pure? What's lovely? What's gracious? What's excellent? What should we be striving for rather than just what are we criticizing? Well, and one and, of the reasons that it is unpopular, uh, as I'm thinking about whatsoever things are just, I think of uh, Oscar Romero, right? Yeah. He, in a response to injustice, focused on what was just and was made a martyr because of it. So it's yeah. uncomfortable and it's sometimes even dangerous to to focus on solutions instead of problems. Yeah, I think that that's quite right. I mean, it it is certainly more divisive and more unpopular. You know, we talked about <laughs> the need to not be needlessly divisive in the first segment, but there is this real sense in which if you're going to push for something good, something that is just, something that is pure, something that's lovely, there are going to be some people who who push back against that. And that's that's a cost that comes with doing things that way. And it's also just harder because many times the solutions are harder to find than the problems. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's easier and it's more fun to complain uh, than it is to actually work towards a positive change. Again, in the church, in the world, in your own life, whatever it is, uh, however you understand like what the problem is you're facing, it's much, yeah, I mean, think about the number of people who follow Jesus compared to the number of people who were upset with the Romans or with the religious authorities of their day way more people were just annoyed with the status quo than were ready to actually, you know, be ransomed by Emmanuel, you know, to, to go back to a different hymn, you know, this call to ransom captive Israel, a lot of Israel saw its captivity 
and didn't necessarily agree with the Messiah. We can have the same problem where we say, yep, here's where I'm in captivity. Here's the problem. But am I going to allow myself to be transformed? Am I going to focus on the solution, Jesus Christ? Or am I just going to you know, complain about the problem? So, so far, we could have had this conversation at any time in the year. And I think this is a worthy conversation to have at any time in the year. But the, specifically, the kind of the the idea behind having this conversation today was to look at Advent and the framework of Advent as a reminder and a focal point on the efficacy of Christ and the incarnation as opposed to the insufficiency of our own efforts. So, so far we have proposed the problem, right? Here's the problem. We're overly divided. We focus on the wrong things. Let's turn that now in these last minutes and look at yeah, let's let's actually practice our own preaching here. Right. Yeah, what is well what said. does Advent offer us yeah. in, in way of response and in way of answer? The Directory of Popular Piety in its section describing uh piety around Advent. If you've never read it, it's a kind of an interest it's it's a weird it's a directory. So it's kind of boring reading at points, but it's really interesting at other points where it just talks about how different People around the world celebrate different parts of the church's liturgical year and how they should. And in Advent, they make the point that popular piety intuitively understands that it is not possible coherently to celebrate the birth of him who saves his people from their sins without some effort to overcome sin in one's own life while waiting vigilantly for him who will return at the end of time. That as you get serious about tackling sin in Advent, in other words, one, you're helping to make a place for Jesus. And two, you're helping to see your own inadequacy and your own need for a savior. And those are both good things to do. And so one thing, you know, we've started doing this at a family level. Um, my wife got this probably from Instagram. Uh, and it's just taking little pieces of thin strips of yellow construction paper to be, you know, the straw for the manger. And we've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, as well as a, a baby who's too young to participate. And at the end of each day, we just go around and see if anyone can name a kind deed someone else did in, in the family. And if they've got a kind deed, they put that in there. And it was really striking. In the case of both of my children, they had days where they got to the end of the day and they said, I don't think I did any kind deeds today. And they had a little bit of like remorse or shame around it. And in both cases, we were able to come up with something they had done that was kind. Um, but it was striking to see something like a little miniature examination of conscience in very small kids. So it, it can, and, and in both cases, I should add, I've seen them do kind deeds because they want to have, you know, a little straw to put in Jesus's manger at the end of the day. So it's a really small thing, right? But as we're looking towards the positive, you know, we didn't guilt them or shame them at all. We allowed them to kind of take a look at, oh, what kind of kind things am I doing to prepare for the coming of Jesus? And it's been a really joyful, uh, very, I don't know, Advent-specific kind of preparation for our Lord's coming. That's infinitely better than Elf on a Shelf. Let me just say I that I hate right now. Elf on a Shelf. The little, <laughs> well, uh We'll talk about that in the Patreon segment. Uh, <laughs> let's move to another uh, line from A Christmas Carol, because I don't know if you know this out there in the world, but Christmas carols are definitively and without question, the best thing in the world. Uh, and, and I've just made a dividing point on that. So there you go. Uh, there's, there's another line, let every heart prepare him room. 
And I think of um, my my small children who go to clean their room and they recognize that it's a mess, right? But they can't organize themselves enough to identify the individual portions of that mess, that the the uh, the examination of consciousness, as it were, to be able to specifically handle those things. And so I think part of this question of what opinions do we have that we are expressing that we don't need to, what conflicts are we raising that are unnecessary and unnecessarily divisive, and what problems are we focusing on instead of solving them? I think part of that process of examining that is the process for preparing room for Christ. Because what yes. we're doing is we're saying my estimations of what is important is insufficient to bring about the kingdom that God wants to bring about. And in order for me to make room for Christ to actually be Lord, it requires me stepping aside. I think sometimes we think in order for Christ to be Lord, I have to make sure that all of the power structures are in the right place so that he can swoop in and take over. <laughs> yes. Um, I got to make sure I've got the right judges and the right politicians so that we can set up God's kingdom on earth and then he can come and do it. As opposed to saying, what I need to do is step back so that the divine can enter into that situation and make the changes he wants to make. Yeah. I, I think, so if I can go back to one of the very first things you said and just make it as practical as I can. When you start to try to prepare a space for Jesus, you know, as you do the kind of popular piety thing, that we just heard about, you know, if you're, you're seeing Christ coming in, you're realizing they yeah, I'm not ready for him any more than they were ready for him in Bethlehem. Well, okay. Then that can become really overwhelming. I, I don't think it's just your kids who've had that problem with uh, the overwhelming problem that just seems right to just create a sort of paralysis. Well, here I would, I would point to, I think it's Father Garagou Lagrange talks about it as principal fault or principal vice. If you're finding this in your own heart and saying, okay, there's not one thing out of whack, there's a lot of things out of whack, don't try to fix everything at once. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but work on one thing in Advent. And even if the rest of your life is still on fire and you've made just a tiny little room that isn't, that's okay. Christ can come into that tiny little room. And you will get further than trying to put out all the fires at once where you, you won't, you'll, you'll be overwhelmed and you won't succeed and you'll feel hopeless. And, and that's not the point of Advent. Advent is a season of hope. It's joyful expectation and it's hope. And it's hope not just in an abstract way, but hope for the coming of the Lord. Uh, and so we do our little bit while realizing our little bit's not very much. Mm -hmm. And in that... That little bit that we're able to allow Christ to do, it th th those little seeds make all the difference, right? It goes back to the, the the parable of the mustard seed. It's the smallest of seeds, but it has the the biggest effect. And well, so, yes, it's the widow's mite. It's you know all there's this constant idea. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, right? Like. He's not asking for, I mean, he wants all of you, right? But he's asking you to make just a tiny little investment in him first Well, and, and, and let him do something. Last little thing here. I, I think that this is maybe a, an important point on discernment, that if you are praying and you feel overwhelmed, it's likely that you're listening to the voice of the enemy telling you that you have to fix everything right. because Christ yeah. wants to come in one place and one thing 
and invite you to one, one inch of a closer encounter. The, the one thing we know is that the voice of discouragement is never from God. And so that's really encouraging, <laughs> you know, that discernment of spirits is hard when you're praying and an idea pops into your head and you say, is that coming from me? Is it coming from God? Is that coming from the enemy? Those things can be hard to sort out. But when it's just tearing you down, well, you know where that one's coming from. Yeah. And conversely, I guess we can add also the peace of Christ, only Christ can give. There's a sort of peace that comes with Jesus that you're not going to find everywhere. And that peace can exist even amidst a lot of external chaos. That peace can exist even amidst a lot of uh, you know, trials and suffering and strife. But it's something coming from him. And so it's something to be attentive to and and open to and desirous of and you know long for that peace and and try to yeah create the space for christ to come with that peace joe it is always an exceptional pleasure to have you on and to have conversations with you thanks for taking the time to be with us absolutely my pleasure if you missed any part of my conversation with joe heschmeyer or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media have no fear all of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. While you're there, click the guest list, go and find Joe's name, and you will find a plethora, a wealth of other episodes where he has joined us on air. One in particular I want to draw your attention to is uh, from a few years ago around the same time, and it's called Advent and the Eschaton. We've used that word a few times here, eschatological and eschaton. That is a, a Greek word referring to Things pertaining to the end, to the end times, as we look forward towards the return of Christ. So uh, that episode there, Advent and the Eschaton with Joe, uh, is going to help unpack that and make that clearer for you. As we alluded to there earlier in the episode, we do have an extra segment where Joe and I had a lively conversation about Elf on the Shelf, Santa Claus, and more. That's available to all those who support the show over on Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more, and consider joining that support community. Now, let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the Catechism, to the Fathers and Doctors of the Church, and so much more. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading today from Scripture comes from the book of 1 Corinthians. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the wisdom of the world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it was the will of God through the foolishness of the proclamation to save those who have faith. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who were called Jews and Greeks alike— Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Rather, God chose the foolish of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak of the world to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly 
and despised of the world, those who count for nothing, to reduce to nothing those who are something, so that no human being might boast before God. It is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, as well as righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, whoever boasts should boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, proclaiming the mystery of God, I did not come with sublimity of words or of wisdom, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my message and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of spirit and power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. That reading again comes from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, and here Paul gives us a model to follow, because when he came to pronounce and proclaim the gospel in Corinth, he did so not with persuasive arguments, not with uh, finding the most eloquent way to convince people by the breadth of his knowledge, by the, the diversity of his opinions. He came with one single purpose, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That all of the other things that he could have said, and certainly he had opinions about, were unimportant when it came to communicating the message, that nothing else mattered. And even though human wisdom would say, well, let's get this totality of complex topics correct, Paul says, no, I knew one thing among you, Christ and him crucified. And may that be for us a strong example and an encouragement to pursue the things that are eternal, the things that truly matter. Whenever we do our readings from church history, I always do my best to try and find something that matches up with the topic of the day. Uh, But today fits particularly well as we're reading a reading from Thomas Akempis from The Imitation of Christ. Do not care much who is with you and who is against you, but make it your greatest care that God is with you in everything you do. Have a good conscience, and God will defend you securely. No one can hurt you if God wishes to help you. If you know how to suffer in silence, you will surely receive God's help, since He knows the best time and the way to set you free. Resign yourself to Him, for God helps you and frees you from all confusion. It is often good for us and helps us to remain humble if others know our weaknesses and confront us with them. When a man humbles himself for his faults, he more easily pleases others and mollifies those he is angered. God protects and frees a humble man. He loves and consoles a humble man. He favors a humble man. He showers him with graces. Then, after his suffering, God raises him up to glory. He reveals his secrets to a humble man and in his kindness, invitingly draws that man to himself. When a humble man is brought to confusion, 
he experiences peace because he stands firm in God and not in this world. Do not think that you have made any progress unless you feel that you are the lowest of all men. Above all things, keep peace within yourself. Then you will be able to create peace among others. It is better to be peaceful than learned. The passionate man often thinks evil of a good man and easily believes the worst. A good and peaceful man turns all things to good. A man who lives at peace suspects no one, but a man who is tense and agitated by evil is troubled with all kinds of suspicions. He is never at peace with himself, nor does he permit others to be at peace. He often speaks when he should be silent, and he fails to say what what would be truly useful. He is well aware of the obligations of others, but neglects his own. So be zealous, first of all, with yourself, and then you will be more justified in expressing zeal for your neighbor. You are good at excusing and justifying your own deeds, and yet you will not listen to the excuses of others. It would be more just to accuse yourself and to excuse your brother. If you wish others to put up with you, first put up with them. That reading again comes from Thomas Akempis from The Imitation of Christ, encouraging us toward humility and peace. And here in this final week, as we are focusing on the preparation for the celebration of the incarnation of Christ and the anticipation for the final return of Christ as he comes again, I encourage you to meditate on those words, all is calm, all is bright. What has to happen in your week this week for you to be able to get to a place where you experience that calmness and that brightness in the Christmas season? What kind of anxieties do you have to let go of? What kind of refocusing will it take for you so that when Christmas comes and we fully celebrate all that it means for God to be with us in Christ, that you can experience a settled peace? Let every heart prepare him room. This is our opportunity to clean house, to find those things that seem good but are less good than the God who wants to occupy that space in our hearts. It's going to take some introspection. It's going to take some prayer, maybe some time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. I encourage you this week to make a little bit of time to do that so that Christmas can be fully celebrated with joy and peace. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show was brought to you by Susan Wise and all of those who support the show through Patreon, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link to learn more and listen to some wonderful extra segments. And join us over on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On threads, the handle is at StepOutsideTheWalls. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace. 
This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.